He is risen. All right. Well, some of you with kids, you may know, maybe you had this at, at your house where your kid just has a favorite parent. Maybe you don't want to say it that way, but you, you know it's kind of true, right? Our youngest, Pierce, he's, he's five, and, you know, he loves me just fine, and we have a lot of fun together and, and everything. But, you know, when he gets hurt or if he has a nightmare or something like that, I can go to him and I can be so kind to him. And I can ask, Pierce, what do you need? Hey, Dad's here. What do you need? And he will look at me and he will say, Daddy, I just want Mom. And sometimes, you know, Steph is there and she is privy to the conversation and she sees what's going on with me and Pierce. And she will say in just the most syrupy voice that she can muster, oh, Piercy, come over here. Mommy will make everything okay. And she'll hold him tight and squeeze his neck and kiss him on the cheek. And then she'll just look at me and wink. (laughs) And we'll laugh. But... You know, it's nice to be sought after, isn't it? It's nice to be wanted. It's nice, it's nice for someone just to approach you and really want you. You know, God has sought after you. You know, you are sought after by God. I don't know if you ever realized that, but you are. And I know sometimes we think, well, if God seeks us, if God has sought us, that he's just sought after me because he wants to rain down some lightning bolts because I know all the ugly in my life. But as we study scripture and as we look at the fact that he is risen, we see that he is risen not so that he can just hurl down lightning bolts and judgment, but that he is risen so that he can gather us in close and he can squeeze us tight and hugs our, hug our necks and say, you're loved, you belong, and there is a purpose that I have for your life. I want you to see that with me this morning. As we study the Easter story together, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. You know, people who stay up late and worry about such things have a hard time with the gospel of Mark. I don't, I don't know if you knew this, but they, they have a problem with the gospel of Mark. And the problem that they have with the gospel of Mark is this, it ends And we're just not quite sure where it ends. As you're turning there this morning, your Bible, like mine, might have the little notation that um, after verse 8, that the earliest and best manuscripts don't include verses 9 through 20. And so there's this debate, where exactly does the gospel of Mark end? Does it end at 16.8 or does it go all the way through 16.20? And so people who just really like to worry about these things, they have a problem, and this is a conundrum. What happens? Does it end or does it not? It's thought that maybe, perhaps, that the early church, some scribes, they're they're looking at the way verse 8 ends, and they say to themselves, you know, we got to help Mark out a little bit. This is not a great ending. We need to add a little more to the end of the story. And so they add these next 11 verses, because as you end in verse 8, It ends with three scared women. Three women trembling and afraid. They're rushing away from an empty tomb. They haven't told anybody yet. They're just frightened. And that's where it ends in verse 8. 
And you read that and you think, you know, this is not really the greatest way to end the greatest story that the world has ever heard. We've got we to help this out just a little bit. And so the later manuscripts, they add verses 9 through 20. But when you read the Gospel of Mark in its entirety, especially you just go right back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, and you think to yourself, perhaps Mark isn't so concerned with how it ends. You see, he opens his book, the very first verse of the very first chapter, with these words, this audacious statement. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, Mark didn't write his gospel to tell us about how things ended. From the get-go, he says, I'm here to tell you how things began. This is where it all starts. We don't come to chapter 16 to find out how things end. It's not the end of chapter 16. He's just getting started. This is just the beginning, and that's what Mark wants you to hear. This is the beginning. So let's hear what Mark writes this morning, the first eight verses of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they may go and anoint him. And very early on, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying, one, they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You know, it's remarkable, isn't it? That things happened just the way Jesus said they would. He told us all this would happen. He, he told us that he would be abandoned by his friends. He told us that he would be given over to evil men and these evil men would see him crucified. He told us that this is how things were gonna work out. He told us that at the resurrection, even no one would be there to see it happen. He, he told Simon Peter point blank, hey, you're not gonna be able to stand up to the pressure he told us all this would happen. You remember Luke 19, you get the triumphal entry when Jesus enters Jerusalem at the beginning of the week. And he comes in and there's a parade and there's all this fanfare and people are singing. They don't even know what they're saying. There's Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then at the same time, they're asking the question, who is this? You know, they just join in this group think and they're, they're saying this. And the religious leaders, they get upset and they run over to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you got to calm down your followers. They're getting all these people just up in arms. There's this, all this commotion. You need to calm them down. And Jesus said, if my followers will not praise me, then the rocks will cry out. And so it is on Easter Sunday morning 
when there wasn't anybody at the tomb to celebrate, the rock shouted, he is risen. It was the rock who was the first witness that he is risen. The first witness of the resurrection wasn't anybody at all. It was a rock. It was a rock that told us something has happened. Something is different. It was the rock who first told the women that something is going on. Jesus is not here. It wasn't anybody at all. It was a rock. Honestly, does that bother you at all? It bothers me that nobody else was there. This is the resurrection of Jesus, and nobody's even there to see it. You would think, wouldn't you, that these disciples who've been with Jesus and followed Jesus all this time, and he had told them time after time after time, hey, I'm going to be crucified, and then after three days, I will rise again. You would think that after they followed him for all this time, and they watched him feed the 5,000, and they watched him walk on water, and they watched him raise Lazarus from the dead, you would think that maybe one of them would take the chance that just maybe something would happen. But nobody was there. It bothers me, you know, because we camp out for concert tickets, you know? I've got friends who have set up camp overnight in front of the grand opening of a Chick-fil-A so they could get some chicken sandwiches. <laughs> and nobody was there to take the chance that maybe, just maybe, when Jesus was saying all this, that something was going to happen. I know that Saturday, the day before, was Passover, and there are Jews, and they got to celebrate the festival. And, and I know that there's the Roman cohort of soldiers, a four-by-four cohort, which means 16 soldiers guarding the entrance to the tomb. I know that all that's there, but you would think that maybe just somebody could have brought a sleeping bag and camped out. But nobody was there because nobody believed anything was going to happen. You say, they knew this, that Jesus was dead, that he was stone cold dead. I know every Easter, there's all these rumors that begin to recirculate and articles that are written about how, hey, maybe people came to the tomb and they stole the body. You know, listen, disciples weren't getting by a Roman cohort of soldiers, okay? These, these 11, like, fishermen and tax collectors and stuff, they're not getting through Roman-trained soldiers, 16 of them. They, they didn't steal the body. You know, sometimes it's special. Well, maybe they went to the wrong tomb, Mary knows where her son is buried, okay? She's, she's not just going to wake up and forget which tomb he's at. They, they went to the right one. Sometimes it's speculate, maybe Jesus wasn't really dead at all. Maybe he got put into that grave, he just passed out, and then as he's put in the tomb, just the cool air of the tomb just kind of revived him and brought him back to life. Well, then you still have the problem that he has to get through the stone. Okay, it was sealed. The Romans sealed it, which means that it was sealed with wax and leather bands, and it was a one to two tone stone. Okay, this man who was nearly dead just passed out, and now he rises sometime, somehow he's going to get through a one to two tone stone that's sealed tight with wax and leather bands, and then after that he's going to somehow defeat this cohort of Roman soldiers. See, they knew this. Jesus was dead. He was dead. The Roman soldiers were efficient and effective 
They make sure when they are to kill somebody that that person dies. If there was any doubt, then they took measures to be sure. Jesus was crucified, you remember, with two criminals, one on his left and one on his right. And they went by to those two criminals and they broke their femurs. They took hammers and crushed their thigh bones to make sure that they were dead. What that would do is then you would slump down. All your weight would go down. It would rip your shoulders out of socket, collapsing your windpipe from your collarbone. They would smother to death. They made sure this was the way they hastened death. And then the Roman soldiers, they get to Jesus And they look at Jesus and they say, this guy's dead. Are you sure? Yeah, look at him. He's dead. Well, just to be sure, let's let's stick a spear in his side. We'll see if he flinches or moves or anything. And they do, and he's dead. He's stone cold dead. The Roman soldiers know he's dead. The religious leaders know he's dead The disciples know he's dead. Mary, the women, they know he's dead. There's no doubt in anyone's mind he's been executed. Pilate knew he was dead. That's why nobody was waiting. That's why nobody was camping. That's why nobody was hoping. Nobody was dreaming. See, the women come and they bring spices. They bring bring spices for a funeral. Because they know he's dead. And everything had happened so quickly that Friday, you know? Everything happened so fast. But by the time they went to one place, Jesus was already at the next place. You can just imagine from Mary's point of view, what what do you mean that Jesus is at the garden praying? What do you mean that now people have come and they've arrested him? What do you mean that Jesus is now taken to a religious trial? What do you mean that now they've transferred him to a civil trial? What do you mean now that the soldiers have him? What do you mean that he's having trouble carrying his cross? What do you mean now that he's about to be crucified? See, it was moving so fast that Friday. They hastened the whole process that by the time Jesus was at one place, they were still trying to figure out what was going on next. It was all they could take emotionally and physically just to be there. And you know how it is in a moment like that. You just can't quite think straight. Because things are happening so fast. It all happens so quick. Then he's executed. Friends place him, his body there in the tomb. They roll the stone in place, the Romans seal it up tight. The guard is set forth to protect any grave robbers from coming to try to steal the body to make sure that no rumors do begin to circulate. See, they knew it was over. They knew he was dead. Their dreams were dead. Their hopes were dead. Dead. And that's why nobody was there because nobody thought that they would miss the action of the resurrection because they didn't really believe there would be a resurrection. So at the end of the Sabbath, the next day, the first day of the week, that Sunday morning, the women get up early before anyone else is awake. It might still be dark outside. They, they, they get up and they bring spices It was the last act of love for Jesus. They wanted to go there, and you read the text, they wanted to go there and to anoint the body. 
to provide some kind of decent funeral service, some kind of decent burial for him. And after that, who knows what they would do. It didn't really matter what they would do. Jesus was dead. It didn't matter where they went after that. It didn't matter who they went with after that. It was over. Their plans were over. After Jesus, he was the hope of all their plans, of all their hopes, of all their dreams. There was nothing else to do. You just kind of pick up the pieces as best you can and live. So the women, they get the spices and they go early. And as they start walking, it's just almost as if they turn the corner and, and they start talking to one another and then it hits them because they're just not quite thinking clearly. And they say, you know, who's going to roll that stone away? There's that big one to two ton stone in our way and we brought these spices to anoint Jesus' body. Who's going to move that for us? I imagine that this group of women may have even started a little bit of an argument. You know, hey, why didn't you think about this before? How are we going to get past that stone? What, do you think the Romans would actually move it for us? How do you think they're going to respond to us? Well, I didn't know I was in charge of stone rolling. I mean, who, who told me this was my job? And then they turn the corner. And, and they see something is wrong. They, they look and they notice the stone is in the wrong place. It's been moved. It's that moment, you know, have you had this when, when you see something, but you just can't quite process it yet? It's happening so fast, and you see it. You're not even sure what you see, and you're trying to make sense of it. And you know, Well, the stone should be here, but it's not there. It's been moved. It's been rolled away. How, how could this be? What's going on? You see, the stone was indeed the first sermon of Easter. The rock did indeed cry out, just like Jesus said. It told the women, something has happened. Something has happened. So you can imagine the emotion now going through these women. They're trying to figure things out. What is going on? What has happened? Has someone beat us here? Has someone stolen the body? What are the Romans doing? And they get there to the tomb, and, and the tomb, the entrance to a tomb is very low. So the women, they've, they've got to kneel down to try to duck in to get in there. And they duck in, and they look in the tomb trying to figure things out. And Mark's gospel tells us that there's a guy sitting there. This is one of those places, too, where you're like, well, maybe we should help Mark out here, too. You know, all the other gospel writers, they tell us it was an angel. Mark, just a guy, just a young man. He's dressed nice, you know, he's wearing a nice robe over there, but he's just a young man. All the other gospel writers, they say an angel. And this angel, this, this guy, he tells women, the women a couple of things. He says, number one, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. Number two, don't be afraid. Too late. They're already afraid. You ever notice that one of the most common, it is actually the most common command in all of Scripture that either an angel or God gives is the command, don't be afraid. And every time it's given, it's always too late because you're already afraid. And then God tells you, don't be afraid. And it's like, oh, God, you should have told me that, that all this was coming. Then maybe I wouldn't be afraid. But right now, 
See, these women, they've been afraid for a long time. They, they were afraid on Friday. They, they've been afraid for a long time with what's going on with Jesus. They, they heard the threats. They knew the rumors. It's too late. They're alarmed. They are frightened. It's probably one of the things we struggle with most too, isn't it? Fear. Being afraid of circumstances, what's going to happen next, how things are going to turn out, how people are going to respond to me, how are things going to react. We struggle with fear too. And we're told don't be afraid, and oftentimes it's, it's too late. We say, God, I'm already afraid. The angel says, don't be afraid. Jesus is not here. He has risen from the dead just as he said he would. Now go tell the disciples and Peter. Did you catch that? Tell the disciples and Peter. What would you have done if you were Peter? I mean, think about that just just for a moment. You're the one, okay? Peter was the one. He stood up in front of Jesus and he says, Jesus, even if everybody else deserts you, even if everybody else runs, I will never run. I've got your back. They would have to kill me to get me away from you. I am with you. And Jesus told Peter, Peter, you're going to betray me too. And then Peter, he folded like cheap lawn furniture in front of the interrogation of a teenage girl. And there was that moment where the rooster crowed and it finally began to dawn on Peter everything that had happened. It, it struck Peter down to the bone. He made eye contact with Jesus. And he remembered what Jesus had said. And, and Peter, he runs away sobbing. Just crying. He's running. See, Peter probably thought he wasn't worthy to be a disciple anymore. He, he probably thought, if, if Jesus ever sought me out, it's just for lightning bolts. Because I'm not worthy. I've betrayed him when he needed me most. I abandoned him when he needed me most. I told him to his face that I would stand with him through anything. And then a teenage girl asked me some questions and I couldn't even stand up to that. So the women... Mark doesn't tell us this, but the women finally do go to the disciples. And they go and they find them and they say, it's good news. Jesus is alive. He's risen just as he said he would. He's he's in Galilee. He's gone before us and he's inviting us. He wants us to come to Galilee to see him. We've got to come. We've got to come. Oh, and Peter, he's especially looking for you. Don't, Don't you know? That for Peter, the last person he really wanted to see was Jesus. Oh, yeah, he loved Jesus. Don't, don't get me wrong. He, he loved Jesus, but he knew he wasn't worthy. He knew what he had done. He knew his betrayal. He knew his abandonment. He knew all of his ugly, all of his shame, all of his dishonor. He knew all that. Now, if you're reading this part of the, the, the encounter, the story... 
And it's not scripture. If you don't know how it ends, if you're just reading this the way you're reading any other book, you read that line when, when he says, when the angel tells the women, hey, go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus wants to see them. If you take this out of scripture and just read this like another story, as if you know nothing, at that point in the story, you're saying, well, Peter's finally going to get his. You know, he's been this loud mouth. He's always tried to kind of show off and Now he's finally done it. Jesus is going to tell him. I think Peter's probably thinking that too. Jesus did just what he said he would do, but I did not do what I said I would do. There's probably somebody here this morning who's a lot like Peter. You look at your life and you, you know, man, I've messed up big. I've, I've done things that I wish I'd never done. And it scares you to death that it'll just be found out. That it'll all come out that people will know. And you're ashamed and you're embarrassed. And it took everything you had just to be here this morning. You came because it's Easter. Hey, on Easter, you, you got to go to church, right? So you came. But if it were up to you, you'd, you'd assume slide in the back and kind of leave at the end. If you could go unnoticed, that'd be just fine because you don't really want an encounter with Jesus because you're afraid that if God comes to you, he's coming with judgment. He's coming with lightning bolts because you know what you've done in your life. You've crossed lines you told yourself you'd never cross. You've done things you swore to yourself you'd never do. You, You said things that you wish you could take back, but you just can't. Now you look at your life and you say, it's not really what I hoped it'd be. It's a wreck in more ways than I'd like to admit. And now, like Peter heard from those women, you're hearing from me on behalf of the risen Christ, that Jesus has come for you. That he is risen for you. He didn't tell Peter that to condemn him. He didn't tell Peter that to judge him. He told Peter that to restore him. He told Peter that so he could bring him in, squeeze his neck, say, Peter, do you love me? because I still got work for you. Peter probably thought, I'm I'm no longer worthy to be a disciple. I've compromised everything that I said I would never compromise. I crossed the line that I swore I'd never cross. And now Jesus brings him in close and says, Peter, it's not over. You still belong. You still belong. Your betrayal does not nullify my love for you. Your abandonment does not overcome my forgiveness for you. And so he tells the women, you be sure to tell Peter, because I want to see him. And some of you, you need to know that Jesus has the same message for you. That he wants to to bring you in close. He wants to hold your, squeeze your neck tight and let you know that he still has plans for you. 
He still wants to use you to share Jesus, to impact people. If you're like Peter this morning, I pray you're listening. I pray you're responding. God, through Jesus Christ, came for you. And one of the things about Jesus is he just keeps on coming. And he doesn't stay just where we'd like him to stay. Maybe you had that moment as a teenager, and it was, it was that moment. Maybe you went to some youth camp or something, and, and Jesus never felt more real. Maybe you were sitting around a fire, and you're singing songs. Maybe you threw a stick into the fire, and you made a promise. You said a prayer, and Jesus never seemed quite so real as in that moment. And you always told yourself, man, I'm never letting go of this. And then life just does what life does. I mean, you just live and moments go by and they turn into months and they turn into years. And now you're looking for that special time again where Jesus never felt quite so close because now it feels like just to get a prayer through to God is like you're trying to find an internet connection somewhere and say, okay, is it working now? Do I have Wi-Fi? Is this getting through? So maybe you pray that same prayer that you prayed when you were 15 at that fire where you had that moment and you think Jesus couldn't be any more closer. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't sitting in that same place anymore. He's still moving. You see, we serve a God who is on the move. In his omnipresence, he is a moving God. And he invites us to be with him. And so he's prepared great things for you to do, great things for your life. He wants to give you life and purpose and meaning. See, Easter wasn't the end of the story for Peter. It was, it was the reality that made all the rest possible. But he's waiting on you. God is waiting on you. So you thought all this time that you were waiting on him. He's waiting on you. He's waiting to tell you that there's a next step to take for all of us, for all of us. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't even know Jesus. You think he sounds like a nice guy or whatever, but if you were to be honest, you say, I don't really have a relationship with him. The step that he's inviting you to take is just to know him, just to be in that family, to be in that relationship, to believe. Maybe you already believe, but... That's about it. Then he's, he's waiting for you to take that next step to really get into just chair one of what being a Christian is all about. And that is to know that you're adopted into a family. That life isn't meant to be lived alone, but, but that God has adopted us into his family. And that we're brothers and sisters who are here to encourage one another and lift one another up and pray for one another and spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And the next step that you really need to take is just to commit to being with the family because that's what good families do. They gather together. They spend time together. Maybe you're doing that, but the next step that you really need to take is the step of just starting to grow in your knowledge of who God is and who Jesus is, and you need to start spending time just reading the Bible. Maybe you look at it and you say, well, the Bible, I don't know that I quite understand the Bible. I try it, but I just can't understand what it says. You just need to develop a plan, you say, maybe I'm not going to understand it all, but I'm just going to read, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask God to help me understand something, just to take something away from it. And so the step that you need to take is just to begin to grow, 
to really invest in your spiritual life, to, to read the Bible, to study it, to pray, and to keep showing up with the family, to be a part of the family, and then to use the gifts that God has given you to encourage other people. Maybe you're doing that, but the, the next step that you need to take, that God is asking you to take, is the step now then to go out into the culture and to start investing in the culture, to start really knowing your neighbors, inviting them into your home and just sharing with Jesus with people just in your community, maybe people you work with, maybe friends on the sports teams or wherever, but just taking Jesus and not being shy about your faith, but being the bold witness that God's called you to be. Maybe you're doing that, and the next step that God is calling you to take is then to train other people. To say, hey, I want, to, I want you to come along with me. I want to teach you what it looks like, what I do, how I go, how I faithfully are part of the family, how I study my Bible, how I go and engage culture. I want to train you how to do all that, and then I want to train you so that you can train others also, faithful people also. See, wherever we're at, there's always a next step to take. And God, through Jesus Christ, is inviting us. He's waiting on us. He's saying, come, take that next step. I've got more for you. I've got exciting plans for you, good plans for you. I want you to take that next step. But if you haven't even taken that first step, the step he's telling you, he's waiting to tell you, is that he is alive. And by virtue of Jesus Christ being alive, that means he is more than just your friend. He is your Savior and your Lord. He is the only one who has come from God, and he is the only one who knows the way back to God. There's no other way to God except through the Son, Jesus Christ. This is why the reality of the resurrection is so important. And the reason why we're not afraid of death is because Jesus, he didn't try to trick death. You know, he met death on death's own terms. He took death's best shot. He didn't try to trick death. He didn't try to fake death out. He didn't try to deceive death. He took death's best shot. He met death on death's own terms, and he defeated it. See, this is one of the frustrating things that sometimes about Jesus is we have these problems in our life, and we pray, and we say, Jesus, you got to help me. I'm struggling with this. And what we really want Jesus to do is just to take us away from that problem and to remove the problem away so that we don't have to deal with it anymore. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he takes us right to the problem. He says, I want you to face this. You got problems with people. Maybe there's someone, they've offended you, they've done something to you, and Maybe you've done something to them, and you'd rather just avoid them. You'd rather just stay away from them. You'd, you'd rather, hey, that just not be a thing anymore, but Jesus does something. He keeps bringing you to that person. Maybe not physically. Maybe, maybe it's just emotionally, and, and you're going to bed at night, and you're just thinking about them again, like, I, I wish things were right. What Jesus is asking us to do is to meet our problems head on just like he did. See, the reason why we're not afraid of death is because Jesus took death's best shot. And then we get to experience the victory that comes with that in all aspects of death.
He hung on the cross. He took death's best shot. He was put in that tomb. But he didn't stay there. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And this is a good thing. Because as we face any aspect of death, we know that death has been defeated. That we are now, we get to share in that victory because he took it head on. And because of this, nothing that, throws, nothing that life throws at us will rob us of our meaning. Because we know why we're here. It will not rob us of our hope, of our dreams. And now Jesus waits on you. See, you see, the Easter story is not the end. It's just the beginning. God has indeed, he's come for you. He sought you out. He said, come. I want to squeeze your neck. I want to show you how much I love you. And I want to empower you to live a life of purpose and meaning that redeems culture. The next step is yours. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Easter. We thank you for the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, and for what that means for all of us. We thank you that through the resurrection of Jesus that you did come for us, that you sought us out, not just to expose all of our ugly, all of our sin, all of our mess that we're all too familiar with, that we know it all too well, but you've come to tell us that through Jesus we belong, that we're still loved, that all of that ugly, all the ugly stuff we've done, it does not overcome the work of Jesus on the cross. It does not overcome your forgiveness for us and your love for us. So God, knowing this message, help us to go and share Jesus and impact people like you call us to. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.